preface to the condition of the working class in england in eighteen forty four this librivox recording is in the public domain the condition of the working class in england in eighteen forty four by friedrich engels translated by florence kelly preface the book an english translation of which is here republished was first issued in germany in eighteen forty five the author at that time was young twenty-four years of age and his production bears the stamp of his youth with its good and its faulty features of neither of which he feels ashamed it was translated into english in eighteen eighty five by an american lady mrs f kelly vishnevsky and published in the following year in new york the american edition being as good as exhausted and having never been extensively circulated on this side of the atlantic the present english copyright edition is brought out with the full consent of all parties interested for the american edition a new preface and an appendix were written in english by the author the first had little to do with the book itself it discussed the american working-class movement of the day and is therefore here omitted as irrelevant the second the original preface is largely made use of in the present introductory remark the state of things described in this book belongs to-day in many respects to the past as far as england is concerned though not expressly stated in our recognized treatises it is still a law of modern political economy that the larger the scale on which capitalistic production is carried on the less can it support the petty devices of swindling and pilfering which characterize its early stages the pettifogging business tricks of the polish jew the representative in europe of commerce in its lowest stage those tricks that serve him so well in his own country and are generally practised there he finds to be out of date and out of place when he comes to hamburg or berlin and again the commission agent who hails from berlin or hamburg jew or christian after frequenting the manchester exchange for a few months finds out that in order to buy cotton yarn or cloth cheap he too had better drop those slightly more refined but still miserable wiles and subterfuges which are considered the acme of cleverness in his native country the fact is those tricks do not pay any longer in a large market where time is money and where a certain standard of commercial morality is unavoidably developed purely as a means of saving time and trouble and it is the same with the relation between the manufacturer and his quote-unquote hands the revival of trade after the crisis of eighteen forty seven was the dawn of a new industrial epoch the repeal of the corn laws and the financial reform subsequent thereon gave to english industry and commerce all the elbow-room they had asked for the discovery of the californian and australian gold-fields followed in rapid succession the colonial markets developed at an increasing rate their capacity for absorbing english manufactured goods in india millions of hand-weavers were finally crushed out by the lancashire power-loom china was more and more being opened up above all the united states then commercially speaking a mere colonial market but by far the biggest of them all underwent an economic development astounding even for that rapidly progressive country and finally the new means of communication introduced at the close of the preceding period railways and ocean steamers were now worked out on an international scale they realized actually what had hitherto existed only potentially a world market this world market at first was composed of a number of chiefly or entirely agricultural countries grouped around one manufacturing centre england 
which consumed the greater part of their surplus raw produce and supplied them in return with the greater part of their requirements in manufactured articles no wonder england's industrial progress was colossal and unparalleled and such that the status of eighteen forty four now appears to us as comparatively primitive and insignificant and in proportion as this increase took place in the same proportion did manufacturing industry become apparently moralized the competition of manufacturer against manufacturer by means of petty thefts upon the workpeople did no longer pay trade had outgrown such low means of making money they were not worth while practising for the manufacturing millionaire and served merely to keep alive the competition of smaller traders thankful to pick up a penny wherever they could thus the truck system was suppressed the ten hours bill was enacted and a number of other secondary reforms introduced much against the spirit of free trade and unbridled competition but quite as much in favour of the giant capitalist in his competition with his less favoured brother moreover the larger the concern and with it the number of hands the greater the loss and inconvenience caused by every conflict between master and men and thus a new spirit came over the masters especially the large ones which taught them to avoid unnecessary squabbles to acquiesce in the existence and power of trades unions and finally even to discover in strikes at opportune times a powerful means to serve their own ends the largest manufacturers formerly the leaders of the war against the working class were now the foremost to preach peace and harmony and for a very good reason the fact is that all these concessions to justice and philanthropy were nothing else but means to accelerate the concentration of capital in the hands of the few for whom the niggardly extra extortions of former years had lost all importance and had become actual nuisances and to crush all the quicker and all the safer their smaller competitors who could not make both ends meet without such perquisites thus the development of production on the basis of the capitalistic system has of itself sufficed at least in the leading industries for in the more unimportant branches this is far from being the case to do away with all those minor grievances which aggravated the workman's fate during its earlier stages and thus it renders more and more evident the great central fact that the cause of the miserable condition of the working class is to be sought not in these minor grievances but in the capitalistic system itself the wage-worker sells to the capitalist his labour force for a certain daily sum after a few hours work he has reproduced the value of that sum but the substance of his contract is that he has to work another series of hours to complete his working day and the value he produces during these additional hours of surplus labour is surplus value which cost the capitalist nothing but yet goes into his pocket that is the basis of the system which tends more and more to split up civilized society into a few rothschilds and vanderbilts the owners of all the means of production and subsistence on the one hand and an immense number of wage-workers the owners of nothing but their labour-force on the other and that this result is caused not by this or that secondary grievance but by the system itself this fact has been brought out in bold relief by the development of capitalism in england since eighteen forty seven again the repeated visitations of cholera typhus smallpox and other epidemics have shown the british bourgeois the urgent necessity of sanitation in his towns and cities if he wishes to save himself and family from falling victims to such diseases accordingly the most crying abuses described in this book 
have either disappeared or have been made less conspicuous drainage has been introduced or improved wide avenues have been opened out athwart many of the worst slums i had to describe little ireland has disappeared and the seven dials are next on the list for sweeping away but what of that whole districts which in eighteen forty four i could describe as almost idyllic have now with the growth of the towns fallen into the same state of dilapidation discomfort and misery only the pigs and the heaps of refuse are no longer tolerated the bourgeoisie have made further progress in the art of hiding the distress of the working class but that in regard to their dwellings no substantial improvement has taken place is amply proved by the report of the royal commission on the housing of the poor eighteen eighty five and this is the case too in other respects police regulations have been plentiful as blackberries but they can only hedge in the distress of the workers they cannot remove it but while england has thus outgrown the juvenile state of capitalist exploitation described by me other countries have only just attained it france germany and especially america are the formidable competitors who at this moment as foreseen by me in eighteen forty four are more and more breaking up england's industrial monopoly their manufactures are young as compared with those of england but increasing at a far more rapid rate than the latter and curious enough they have at this moment arrived at about the same phase of development as english manufacture in eighteen forty four with regard to america the parallel is indeed most striking true the external surroundings in which the working class is placed in america are very different but the same economical laws are at work and the results if not identical in every respect must still be of the same order hence we find in america the same struggles for a shorter working day for a legal limitation of the working time especially of women and children in factories we find the truck system in full blossom and the cottage system in rural districts made use of by the quote-unquote bosses as a means of domination over the workers when i received in eighteen eighty six the american papers with accounts of the great strike of twelve thousand pennsylvanian coal-miners in the connellsville district i seemed but to read my own description of the north of england collier's strike of eighteen forty four the same cheating of the workpeople by false measure the same truck system the same attempt to break the miners resistance by the capitalists last but crushing resource the eviction of the men out of their dwellings the cottages owned by the companies i have not attempted in this translation to bring the book up to date or to point out in detail all the changes that have taken place since eighteen forty four and for two reasons firstly to do this properly the size of the book must be about doubled and secondly the first volume of das kapital by karl marx an english translation of which is before the public contains a very ample description of the state of the british working-class as it was about eighteen sixty five that is to say at the time when british industrial prosperity reached its culminating point i should then have been obliged again to go over the ground already covered by marx's celebrated work it will be hardly necessary to point out that the general theoretical standpoint of this book philosophical economical political does not exactly coincide with my standpoint of to-day modern international socialism since fully developed as a science chiefly and almost exclusively through the efforts of marx did not as yet exist in eighteen forty four my book represents one of the phases of its embryonic development 
and as the human embryo in its early stages still reproduces the gill arches of our fish ancestors so this book exhibits everywhere the traces of the descent of modern socialism from one of its ancestors german philosophy thus great stress is laid on the dictum that communism is not a mere party doctrine of the working class but a theory compassing the emancipation of society at large including the capitalist class from its present narrow conditions this is true enough in the abstract but absolutely useless and sometimes worse in practice so long as the wealthy classes not only do not feel the want of any emancipation but strenuously oppose the self-emancipation of the working class so long the social revolution will have to be prepared and fought out by the working class alone the french bourgeois of seventeen eighty nine too declared the emancipation of the bourgeoisie to be the emancipation of the whole human race but the nobility and clergy would not see it the proposition though for the time being with respect to feudalism an abstract historical truth soon became a mere sentimentalism and disappeared from view altogether in the fire of the revolutionary struggle and to-day the very people who from the quote-unquote impartiality of their superior standpoint preach to the workers a socialism soaring high above their class interests and class struggles and tending to reconcile in a higher humanity the interests of both the contending classes these people are either neophytes who have still to learn a great deal or they are the worst enemies of the workers wolves in sheep's clothing the recurring period of the great industrial crisis is stated in the text as five years this was the period apparently indicated by the course of events from eighteen twenty five to eighteen forty two but the industrial history from eighteen forty two to eighteen sixty eight has shown that the real period is one of ten years that the intermediate revulsions were secondary and tended more and more to disappear since eighteen sixty eight the state of things has changed again of which more anon i have taken care not to strike out of the text the many prophecies amongst others that of an imminent social revolution in england which my youthful ardour induced me to venture upon the wonder is not that a good many of them proved wrong but that so many of them proved right and that the critical state of english trade to be brought on by continental and especially american competition which i then foresaw though in too short a period has now actually come to pass in this respect i can and am bound to bring the book up to date by placing here an article which i published in the london commonweal of march one eighteen eighty five under the heading quote, england in eighteen forty five and in eighteen eighty five it gives at the same time a short outline of the history of the english working class during these forty years and is as follows quote, forty years ago england stood face to face with a crisis solvable to all appearances by force only the immense and rapid development of manufactures had outstripped the extension of foreign markets and the increase of demand every ten years the march of industry was violently interrupted by a general commercial crash followed after a long period of chronic depression by a few short years of prosperity and always ending in feverish overproduction and consequent renewed collapse the capitalist class clamoured for free trade in corn and threatened to enforce it by sending the starving population of the towns back to the country districts whence they came to invade them as john bright said not as paupers begging for bread but as an army quartered upon the enemy 
the working masses of the towns demanded their share of political power the people's charter they were supported by the majority of the small trading class and the only difference between the two was whether the charter should be carried by physical or by moral force then came the commercial crash of eighteen forty seven and the irish famine and with both the prospect of revolution the french revolution of eighteen forty eight saved the english middle class the socialistic pronunciamentos of the victorious french workmen frightened the small middle class of england and disorganized the narrower but more matter-of-fact movement of the english working class at the very moment when chartism was bound to assert itself in its full strength it collapsed internally before even it collapsed externally on the tenth of april eighteen forty eight the action of the working class was thrust into the background the capitalist class triumphed along the whole line the reform bill of eighteen thirty one had been the victory of the whole capitalist class over the landed aristocracy the repeal of the corn laws was the victory of the manufacturing capitalist not only over the landed aristocracy but over those sections of capitalists too whose interests were more or less bound up with the landed interest bankers stock-jobbers fund-holders etc free trade meant the readjustment of the whole home and foreign commercial and financial policy of england in accordance with the interests of the manufacturing capitalists the class which now represented the nation and they will set about this task with a will every obstacle to industrial production was mercilessly removed the tariff and the whole system of taxation were revolutionized everything was made subordinate to one end but that end of the utmost importance to the manufacturing capitalist the cheapening of all raw produce and especially of the means of living of the working class the reduction of the cost of raw material and the keeping down if not as yet the bringing down of wages england was to become the workshop of the world all other countries were to become for england what ireland already was markets for her manufactured goods supplying her in return with raw materials and food england the great manufacturing centre of an agricultural world with an ever-increasing number of corn and cotton-growing irelands revolving around her the industrial sun what a glorious prospect the manufacturing capitalists set about the realization of this their great object with that strong common sense and that contempt for traditional principles which has ever distinguished them from their more narrow-minded compeers on the continent chartism was dying out the revival of commercial prosperity natural after the revulsion of eighteen forty seven had spent itself was put down altogether to the credit of free trade both these circumstances had turned the english working-class politically into the tail of the great liberal party the party led by the manufacturers this advantage once gained had to be perpetuated and the manufacturing capitalists from the chartist opposition not to free trade but to the transformation of free trade into the one vital national question had learned and were learning more and more that the middle class can never obtain full social and political power over the nation except by the help of the working class thus a gradual change came over the relations between both classes the factory acts once the bugbear of all manufacturers were not only willingly submitted to but their expansion into acts regulating almost all trades was tolerated trades unions hitherto considered inventions of the devil himself were now petted and patronized as perfectly legitimate institutions 
and as useful means of spreading sound economical doctrines amongst the workers even strikes than which nothing had been more nefarious up to eighteen forty eight were now gradually found out to be occasionally very useful especially when provoked by the masters themselves at their own time of the legal enactments placing the workmen at a lower level or at a disadvantage with regard to the master at least the most revolting were repealed and practically that horrid people's charter actually became the political programme of the very manufacturers who had opposed it to the last the abolition of the property qualification and vote by ballot are now the law of the land the reform acts of eighteen sixty seven and eighteen eighty four make a near approach to universal suffrage at least such as it now exists in germany the redistribution bill now before parliament creates equal electoral districts on the whole not more unequal than those of germany payment of members and shorter if not actually annual parliaments are visibly looming in the distance and yet there are people who say that chartism is dead the revolution of eighteen forty eight not less than many of its predecessors has had strange bedfellows and successors the very people who put it down have become as karl marx used to say its testamentary executors louis napoleon had to create an independent and united italy bismarck had to revolutionize germany and to restore hungarian independence and the english manufacturers had to enact the people's charter for england the effects of this domination of the manufacturing capitalists were at first startling trade revived and extended to a degree unheard of even in this cradle of modern industry the previous astounding creations of steam and machinery dwindled into nothing compared with the immense mass of productions of the twenty years from eighteen fifty to eighteen seventy with the overwhelming figures of exports and imports of wealth accumulated in the hands of capitalists and of human working power concentrated in the large towns the progress was indeed interrupted as before by a crisis every ten years in eighteen fifty seven as well as in eighteen sixty six but these revulsions were now considered as natural inevitable events which must be fatalistically submitted to and which always set themselves right in the end and the condition of the working class during this period there was temporary improvement even for the great mass but this improvement always was reduced to the old level by the influx of the great body of the unemployed reserve by the constant superseding of bands by new machinery by the immigration of the agricultural population now too more and more superseded by machines a permanent improvement can be recognized for two protected sections only of the working class firstly the factory hands the fixing by act of parliament of their working day within relatively rational limits has restored their physical constitution and endowed them with a moral superiority enhanced by their local concentration they are undoubtedly better off than before eighteen forty eight the best proof is that out of ten strikes they make nine are provoked by the manufacturers in their own interests as the only means of securing a reduced production you can never get the masters to agree to work short time let manufactured goods be ever so unsaleable but get the work people to strike and the masters shut their factories to a man secondly the great trades unions they are the organizations of those trades in which the labor of grown-up men predominates or is alone applicable here the competition neither of women and children nor of machinery has so far weakened their organized strength the engineers the carpenters and joiners the bricklayers 
are each of them a power, to that extent that, as in the case of the bricklayers and bricklayers' labourers, they can even successfully resist the introduction of machinery. That their condition has remarkably improved since 1848, there can be no doubt, and the best proof of this is in the fact that for more than fifteen years not only have their employers been with them, but they with their employers, upon exceedingly good terms. They form an aristocracy among the working class. They have succeeded in enforcing for themselves a relatively comfortable position, and they accept it as final. They are the model workingmen of Messrs. Leone Levy and Giffen, and they are very nice people indeed nowadays to deal with, for any sensible capitalist in particular, and for the whole capitalist class in general. But as to the great mass of working people, the state of misery and insecurity in which they live now is as low as ever, if not lower. The East End of London is an ever-spreading pool of stagnant misery and desolation, of starvation when out of work, and degradation, physical and moral, when in work. And so in all other towns, abstraction made of the privileged minority of the workers, and so in the smaller towns and in the agricultural districts. The law which reduces the value of labour-power to the value of the necessary means of subsistence, and the other law which reduces its average price, as a rule, to the minimum of those means of subsistence, these laws act upon them with the irresistible force of an automatic engine, which crushes them between its wheels. This, then, was the position created by the free trade policy of 1847, and by twenty years of the rule of the manufacturing capitalists. But then a change came. The crash of 1866 was indeed followed by a slight and short revival about 1873. But that did not last. We did not indeed pass through the full crisis at the time it was due, in 1877 or 1878. But we have had, ever since 1876, a chronic state of stagnation in all dominant branches of industry. Neither will the full crash come, nor will the period of longed-for prosperity to which we used to be entitled before and after it. A dull depression, a chronic glut of all markets for all trades, that is what we have been living in for nearly ten years. How is this? The free trade theory was based upon one assumption, that England was to be the one great manufacturing centre of an agricultural world. And the actual fact is that this assumption has turned out to be a pure delusion. The conditions of modern industry, steam-power and machinery, can be established wherever there is fuel, especially coals. And other countries beside England, France, Belgium, Germany, America, even Russia, have coals. And the people over there did not see the advantage of being turned into Irish pauper farmers merely for the greater wealth and glory of English capitalists. They set resolutely about manufacturing, not only for themselves, but for the rest of the world. And the consequence is that the manufacturing monopoly enjoyed by England for nearly a century is irretrievably broken up. But the manufacturing monopoly of England is the pivot of the present social system of England. Even while that monopoly lasted, the markets could not keep pace with the increasing productivity of English manufacturers. The decennial crises were the consequence. And new markets are getting scarcer every day, so much so that even the Negroes of the Congo are now to be forced into the civilization attendant upon Manchester calicoes, Staffordshire pottery, and Birmingham hardware. How will it be when continental, and especially American, goods flow in in ever-increasing quantities, 
when the predominating share, still held by British manufacturers, will become reduced from year to year? Answer. Free trade. Thou universal panacea. I am not the first to point this out. Already in 1883, at the Southport meeting of the British Association, Mr. Inglis Palgrave, the president of the economic section, stated plainly that, quote, the days of great trade profits in England were over, and there was a pause in the progress of several great branches of industrial labor. The country might almost be said to be entering the non-progressive state, end quote. But what is to be the consequence? Capitalist production cannot stop. It must go on increasing and expanding, or it must die. Even now the mere reduction of England's lion's share in the supply of the world's markets means stagnation, distress, excess of capital here, excess of unemployed workpeople there. What will it be when the increase of yearly production is brought to a complete stop? Here is the vulnerable place, the heel of Achilles for capitalist production. Its very basis is the necessity of constant expansion, and this constant expansion now becomes impossible. It ends in a deadlock. Every year England is brought nearer face to face with the question, either the country must go to pieces, or capitalist production must. Which is it to be? And the working class? Even under the unparalleled commercial and industrial expansion from 1848 to 1868, they have had to undergo such misery. If even then the great bulk of them experienced at best but a temporary improvement of their condition, while only a small, privileged, protected minority was permanently benefited, what will it be when this dazzling period is brought finally to a close? When the present dreary stagnation shall not only become intensified, but this its intensified condition shall become the permanent and normal state of English trade. The truth is this. During the period of England's industrial monopoly, the English working class have, to a certain extent, shared in the benefits of the monopoly. These benefits were very unequally parcelled out amongst them. The privileged minority pocketed most, but even the great mass had, at least, a temporary share now and then. And that is the reason why, since the dying out of Owenism, there has been no socialism in England. With the breakdown of that monopoly, the English working class will lose that privileged position. It will find itself generally, the privileged and leading minority not accepted, on a level with its fellow workers abroad. And that is the reason why there will be socialism again in England. To this statement of the case, as that case appeared to me in 1885, I have but little to add. Needless to say that today there is indeed socialism again in England, and plenty of it. Socialism of all shades, socialism conscious and unconscious, socialism prosaic and poetic, socialism of the working class and of the middle class. For verily that abomination of abominations, socialism, has not only become respectable, but has actually donned evening dress and lounges lazily on drawing-room causeuses. That shows the incurable fickleness of that terrible despot of society, middle-class public opinion, and once more justifies the contempt in which we socialists of a past generation always held that public opinion. At the same time, we have no reason to grumble at the symptom itself. What I consider far more important than this momentary fashion among bourgeois circles of affecting a mild dilution of socialism, and even more than the actual progress socialism has made in England generally, that is the revival of the East End of London. 
that immense haunt of misery is no longer the stagnant pool it was six years ago. It has shaken off its torpid despair, has returned to life, and has become the home of what is called the quote-unquote new unionism, that is to say, of the organization of the great mass of quote-unquote unskilled workers. This organization may to a great extent adopt the form of the old unions of skilled workers, but it is essentially different in character. The old unions preserve the traditions of the time when they were founded, and look upon the wages system as a once-for-all established final fact, which they at best can modify in the interest of their members. The new unions were founded at a time when the faith in the eternity of the wages system was severely shaken. Their founders and promoters were socialists either consciously or by feeling. The masses, whose adhesion gave them strength, were rough, neglected, looked down upon by the working-class aristocracy. But they had this immense advantage, that their minds were virgin soil, entirely free from the inherited quote-unquote respectable bourgeois prejudices which hampered the brains of the better-suited old unionists. And thus we see now these new unions taking the lead of the working-class movement generally, and more and more taking in tow the rich and proud old unions. Undoubtedly the East Enders have committed colossal blunders, so have their predecessors, and so do the doctrinaire socialists who poo-poo them. A large class, like a great nation, never learns better or quicker than by undergoing the consequences of its own mistakes. And for all the faults committed in the past, present, and future, the revival of the East End of London remains one of the greatest and most fruitful facts of this fin de siècle, and glad and proud I am to have lived to see it. F. Engels, January 11, 1892 End of Preface